All righty, we're going to begin our next segment in our foundation study. You know, we started this a long, long time ago to build a wall of foundational beliefs. And we began with the Bible because we made no excuses and we just admitted uh, uh, th that is where we begin. Uh, otherwise, we're left with lots of opinions and speculations and so we built a case way back when for the reliability of the Scriptures as being God's Word. And so uh, the rest of what we developed in terms of beliefs uh, come directly from the Bible. And so we went through all these topics and began a few Wednesday nights ago. We could call it the topic of Israelology, uh, the study of Israel. And you might say, well, why not the study of Jamaica or Australia? Well, feel free if you'd like, uh, but we're studying Israel because God has made it a study in his scriptures. We just want to follow his points of emphasis, and, and, and it's undeniable. Israel, 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 every book of the Bible has something to say about Israel. 700 plus times Jerusalem, Jerusalem is mentioned in the Bible, and so we just want to follow God's lead and focus on what he is focusing on. So uh, we began by talking about Israel's past. You remember in the first book of the Bible, we call it Bereshit, Genesis 12, we spoke about God's deal, if you will, a covenant, a contract with Avram, who became Abraham, Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. And remember, I mentioned to you it contained various promises, one of which was the land. So we took off from the Abrahamic covenant, began to develop uh, a notion of the actual physical land of Israel. We're going to be speaking in subsequent weeks about the people, Jewish people, uh, their present situation and and their future situation. Some would say God has no future for the Jews. Uh, it's over with. He's replaced the Jews. Well, I want to demonstrate to you that that is not the case uh, at all. But, but, but for now, we're still dealing with the land of Israel. And so this segment tonight is actually part four with regard to the land of Israel. Now, you'll forgive me if this is a little more historical tonight uh, than biblical. And you might say, uh, there's no place for that in the church. Well, please hang in there with me. I want to try to build uh, an understanding of how Israel came to be, what its history was to bring us into our present day situation so as to understand the Middle East through spiritual eyes, not just geopolitical eyes. And so uh, tonight's segment, we'll talk about Israel rather briefly between 1917 and 1956. And then, Lord willing, next week I'll pick it up in 1956 to bring it up to date. And I'll show you a few slides and maps here or there to, I hope, facilitate your understanding. Why 1917? Well, at the time, uh, Israel was uh, under the control of the British. This might come as a surprise to you, but it was. And in 1917, uh, the, the uh, British people decided um, uh, to sort of create a Jewish state. And this was announced in 1917 in something called the Balfour Declaration. And in the Balfour Declaration, it was stated this, and you see it on your screen, His Majesty's government, you know, that's England, views with favor 
uh, the establishment in Palestine. Now, if you listen to a prior message, um, you'll hear what I think about the name Palestine. We'll go with it uh, for now, but it's really the land of Canaan. Uh, but okay, I'll, we'll go along with the with the Brits here. It's not the first time they've been wrong. Anyway, the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. That was in 1917. Do you remember the date? We spoke about it last week when the modern state of Israel was established. It was 19... Hey, way to go, 1948. But I just want you to see, back it up, 1917, you see. This is before Theodore Herzl. Remember, we spoke about him and David Ben-Gurion. This is 1917. Uh, the Balfour Declaration. His Majesty's government views with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. So that was the Balfour uh, Declaration. And so the land of Israel, as we know it today, was under what was then known as the British Mandate. The British Mandate. And... Uh, under the British mandate, this is, you see the screens behind me, this is what things looked like. See where it says Transjordan, all that green area? Think of Jordan, okay? Think of present-day Jordan. And when you get over to the yellow area, the dividing line from north to south uh, is the Jordan River. And so under the British mandate, uh, in 1917, this is the way the land was to be divided up. And you see the British folks were going to give the yellow area as the homeland to the Jews. And then something came about called the League of Nations, uh, which was the predecessor of the wonderful United Nations, which uh, uh, you might be a big fan of. Um, and... Okay, but all right. So the League of Nations was the predecessor of the United Nations. And the League of Nations, following the Balfour Declaration in 1917, the League of Nations reaffirmed that whole notion to create a Jewish homeland and to oversee the establishment of separate Arab and Jewish states, nations in the land. And so the area uh, to the west of the Jordan River was to be according to the League of Nations, designated as the Jewish homeland. So you had, so you had the, 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 the British government authorizing it, and then, then you had the League of Nations authorizing it. I, I just want you to get this notion. It, it wasn't a bunch of little, little Jews who just decided out of the blue to take the land. It's just that's not the way it played out. You know, the British came up with this idea, 1917, and then it was confirmed by the League of Nations, and so the area west of the Jordan was to be the Jewish homeland. And the entire region that you're looking at there on the screen uh, was governed by Britain from 1922 to 1946. And then in 1947, the United Nations introduced this plan uh, for the area. You see it uh, on the screen. It was after World War II, and it was in 1947, and this was the partitioning of the land uh, that the United Nations uh, came up with. Again, you see separate Jewish and Arab states. And so, 
uh, what you may see to be perhaps a little unacceptable. Look, there's not much Israel there, is there? It's like, it's what is that? Look how narrow you can't. How do you defend that? Tell me. How do you defend that? What, those borders. But anyway, uh, Israel decided to agree with the UN partition plan and also with peaceful coexistence with its Arab neighbors. And so it declared its independence. Uh, in May of 1948, as we discussed last time. When this happened, uh, just to give you a frame of reference, the Jewish state uh, constituted, if you can imagine this, only one-sixth of one percent of what was then known as the Arab world. One-sixth of one percent. We're not talking about a massive land area is the point I'm trying to to make here. However, in spite of this, the Arab nations surrounding Israel rejected the plan and immediately invaded Israel. And so you see this invasion uh, depicted uh, here on this particular slide. In fact, the Secretary General of the Arab League declared this will be a war of extermination and a momentous massacre. Could I say something parenthetically to you? I do not have any personal animosity towards Arab peoples and towards Muslim people. How dare I, redeemed by grace by the blood of the Lamb, a lawbreaker myself, deserving God's fiercest judgment because I have offended his holiness. Therefore, the field has been labeled and perish the thought that I or anyone else would look down with arrogance and disdain against any other people group. No, our citizenship is in heaven. And the best thing we could do to make friends out of enemies is to extend the gospel of peace. Thank God, uh, before we leave tonight, our pastor will lead us in praying uh, for two groups from our own church who will be going to Yemen and to Oman to take the gospel of peace. And if you ask me what I think, I don't even have words to express how uh, joyous and grateful I am for this. For the only hope uh, for two people groups, anybody getting along is the gospel at peace, but you have to be at peace uh, with Almighty God before you can make peace on a horizontal level. So I don't want you to hear, though I get a little passionate, I don't want you to hear me turning anyone against any people group. I remember I told you one time the enemy behind the scenes is not the Arabs, and it, it isn't any people group, it's Satan. So, so be careful, be careful that you don't hear me uh, maybe being a little too harsh. And if, you, if I am, please tell me. Please tell me because I, I don't want to be and I don't have any right to be. But I do have to state the facts. So I'm, I'm sharing with you what the Secretary General of the Arab League said. This will be a war of extermination. I find it hard to try to negotiate peace with someone who issues a declaration like that. This will be a war of extermination. It's not even replacement from the land. It's drive the Jews into the sea. And a momentous massacre, he declared. Now you say, yeah, but that was years ago. Yeah, but it's still part of the Palestinian charter today. Nothing has changed. Even though our president, did you know this? Our president, even as we speak, is on a nine-day tour of the Middle East, uh, met with uh, the prime minister of Israel today and 
others, and I applaud all the efforts, but they're in vain. There will be no peace in the land until the Sar Shalom, the Prince of Peace, is recognized by the people uh, in the land. But anyway, when this happened, when the Arab nations teamed up to exterminate Israel, I want you to know um, the odds. The Arab countries combined were 20 times larger than Israel. Um, Israel was outnumbered militarily 40 to 1. 40 to 1. Those are not good odds. In population, Israel was outnumbered 100 to 1. In military equipment, Israel was outnumbered 1,000 to 1. And in land area, Israel was outnumbered 5,000 to 1. And yet Israel prevailed. It was a new fledgling nation, don't you see? Made up mostly of exiles from other Arab countries and Holocaust survivors. It was barely constituted and yet prevailed in this Arab war of aggression. And I have to ask the question, and so do you, how? And I'll tell you as a Jew what I'm tempted to say. I'm tempted to say we're hot. That's how we did it. I'm tempted to say, don't mess with us. You don't know what we got. I'll tell you what we got. We got arthritis. <laughs> we, got, we got psoriasis left and right. That outcome cannot be explained on the basis of brilliant military strategy. That's nonsense. I've served in the military, as have many of you. There's no military strategy sufficient to help you overcome those odds. So how did they prevail and why? Let me make this dogmatic statement. They prevailed because the God of the Bible keeps his promises. That's why. <clears throat> and the survival of the Jewish people, did you know this, is guaranteed in the Bible. The survival of Jewish people is guaranteed in the Bible. God spoke to us through one of his prophets of old, Jeremiah, in chapter 31, uh, verses 35 and 36. It says, thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed, if, conditional statement, if this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then, if, now then, if all that happens, then, the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation from before me forever. The survival of Israel, you see, is guaranteed in the Bible, and that's the only explanation for the survival of Israel and the existence of Jews today. Six million of us perished in the Holocaust. It's an astounding thing. I'm not minimizing it, but what I find even more astounding than the six million who perished are the ones who survived. There are 14 million of us alive today. Please explain that to me. Against the Third Reich, one of the most powerful empires militarily on earth, a people group loses six million and survives? 
Tell me how that happened. The Bible guarantees the survival of the Jews. That's how it happened. And so Israel prevailed. And what's going on? What is God up to? I'll tell you what he's up to. He wants there to be living proof. <laughs> living proof demonstrating that God keeps his promises. And the living proof are Jews running around today. There's no explanation for the existence of Jews today except God keeps his word. Therefore, you can count on it. Whatever promises in the Bible apply to you will be fulfilled in spite of you because God keeps his word. Now, I want you to take a look at the borders of Israel after this war. These were after the armistice, uh, after the, that first war, uh, the borders changed. In fact, the borders of Israel, after she prevailed in that first war, uh, perhaps you, you can tell, expanded a little closer uh, to the borders God uh, bequeathed to her way back in the book of Genesis, which she never fully possessed, but just getting a little closer to it. So God used uh, that terrible war of aggression actually to give Israel a little uh, breathing room. And so this land was given to Israel, these boundaries under the UN partition plan. Now, during and following the war, something happened. Thousands of Arabs who were living in the land left the land and became refugees, Arab refugees. In fact, 650,000 uh, Arab people left the land. Why? Did the Israeli army point their guns at them and force them out? No. Uh, their own leaders, Arab leaders, said to them, leave now until we can come in and exterminate the Jews. When we do, you will come back. So while 650,000 Arab refugees were leaving the land at exactly the same time, Jewish refugees were coming into the land. And so over the next few years, you see over 800,000 Jews um, fled Arab countries. Uh, many others were Holocaust survivors, and they came into the land. Uh, during this time, these Jews did not leave the Arab countries in which they dwelt voluntarily. They left at gunpoint and under threat of death. Now, again, at the risk of sounding harsh, to my mind, I've simply stated thus far the facts. I have not editorialized. I'm telling you, 650,000 Arab refugees left voluntarily. They are the forebearers of the group today we called Palestinians. But I'm telling you, over 800,000 Jews were forced out of countries like Iraq and Yemen, to which some of our most wonderful people will be going soon, Libya, Lebanon, Syria, Egypt. They were driven out. Jews were not permitted to live in or enter Saudi Arabia. All the Jews of Algeria left in the early 60s, as did most of the Jews of Tunisia and Morocco. It was a deliberate attempt at ethnic cleansing uh, in the Arab world of the Jews, which led to their migration from all of these countries in which they dwelt to the land of 
Israel. So most who arrived there in these early years, as I mentioned to you, were either Holocaust survivors or ones fleeing Arab uh, lands. We have some Israelis with us tonight. Um, and maybe later, if you get a chance, they can tell you about how they, how did they end up in the land and how did their relatives get there and so on. But anyway, this was the case. Now, uh, when the Jewish refugees arrived in the Holy Land, then and even now, they were fully assimilated. They became Israeli citizens, though they might have come from Yemen and they might have come from Germany. They became full-fledged, fully assimilated Israeli citizens. Jews who then migrated to Israel, Jews who today migrate to Israel are completely absorbed into a country not much larger than the size of New Jersey. <laughs> it's the right of return. If you're a Jew, you could come to the Jewish holy land, uh, 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 homeland from anywhere. But that was not the case with the Arab refugees whom I mentioned. Uh, again, forebears of today's Palestinian people. Their situation has been much different, as you can uh, see a little bit in this next slide. Uh, Arab refugees, their situation has been different than Jewish refugees. They, the Arab refugees, have not, even today, been fully assimilated into neighboring Arab countries. In fact, they've been kept in refugee camps down to this very day, which begs the question, why? When the Arab world is rich in land area, I mentioned to you there are 22 separate Arab countries with massive land area. How could it be that there would still be Arab refugees living in camps? Now here I simply will advance, I'll tell you, an opinion, but I think it's based on fact. I think it's because humanitarian concerns for one's fellow Arab refugees is superseded by their propaganda value. It sure makes Israel look like the aggressor. When you see Palestinians living in impoverished, horrible conditions, you see Palestinian kids confronting with stones mighty Israeli tanks. Would you put your kids in front of a tank? Whose fault is that? So the propaganda value of not assimilating the Arab refugees into Arab lands, uh, it seems to me, is the explanation why we still have the situation we do today. Listen, since World War II, there have been over 100 million refugees worldwide. But these Arab people who I mentioned to you are the only refugee group in the world that has not been fully integrated into their own people's land. The only one. You tell me why. You tell me why. You got a better explanation? I'd like to know about it. So this is the case despite vast Arab land holdings, 22 I told you separate Arab nations of the world. There's only one Jewish nation, and Jews from anywhere could go into that nation. And there's something else I, I don't know if you know about uh, Israel. Israel uh, has not only absorbed uh, Jews from all over who can make aliyah, 
Aliyah. You can, it means ascent. You can, you can go up to the land and become full-fledged citizens. But I, I don't know if you, you knew that in Israel, uh, there are also many Arab-Israeli citizens. The census taken, for instance, in uh, 2006 uh, told us that in 2006, more now, but then, there were 1,413,500 Arab Israelis who have full citizenship rights in Israel. Could you please tell me what my rights would be in an Arab nation? I wouldn't have the right to live. And yet, close to a million and a half, this is like seven million people in Israel. One and a half million are Arab citizens of Israel. And of the million and a half Arabs who are citizens of Israel, did you know 70% are Muslim? 70% are Muslim. And as a result, they're not required to serve in the Israeli military, though they're Israeli citizens. It might surprise you to know that not too many volunteer to do so. <laughs> so that's interesting to me. Not only that, the birth rate amongst Muslim people in Israel is the highest of any people group in Israel. So according to forecasts, the Muslim population in Israel uh, will grow to over 2 million or around 25% of the population of Israel within the next 15 years. So we have one dinky country smaller than New Jersey, and even in that country, one out of four citizens is now an Arab, and of those, 70% are Muslim people. I'm not against this. Please don't misunderstand. I just want you to know what the facts are when Israel is painted to be the occupier. Of what? Yasser Arafat, who was the head, deceased now, of the PLO, Palestine Liberation Organization, now the PA, he was an occupier. He wasn't born in the land. He's from Egypt. So though this is a little bit more uh, political than we're used to, I think it's important to know the facts. So... Um, the Israeli Declaration of Independence of 1948 made clear provision uh, for all people, groups, and religions to have full freedoms in the land. It called for the establishment of a Jewish state, but a Jewish state with equality of social and political rights irrespective of religion, race, or gender. The only true democracy in the Middle East is Israel. I'm not trying to toot my own horn. I'm just trying to call it what it is. When we have people say, why can't these Arabs and Jews just get along? We don't have moral equivalence. The only true democracy in Israel. Do you know in 2006... 12 members of the 120-member Israeli parliament known as the Knesset were Arabs. How many Jews are part of the government of an Arab nation? Tell me. What would be my chances to run for mayor of uh, Tehran? Something like that. You tell me what my life is. So the argument of moral equity is just not there. You know, one of Israel's Supreme Court justices is a Palestinian Arab. How would you like it if 
something like that was the case in the good old U.S. of A. So it is a true democracy, and it's the only true democracy in the Middle East. The infant mortality rate for Arab people in Israel has dropped from 32 deaths per uh, 1,000 in 1970 to 8.6 per 1,000 in 2,000. Life expectancy for Arab citizens of Israel has increased 27 years since 1948. On average, the average Arab Israeli citizen lives 27 years longer than he or she did uh, in 1940. Why? Because Israel's not a third world country. That's why. When we go there, people get a little nervous. What if I get sick? What do you mean when you get sick? It's a country filled with Jewish doctors. <laughs> what are you talking about? Here's something very ironic to me. In Israel, Arab citizens of Israel can protest against the government freely, and they can sue the government and win. And yet that very thing would not be permitted them in another Arab country, though they be Arab. You try pulling that off in Saudi Arabia. It's not the same. And in Israel, there is more freedom of religion than in any other Middle Eastern country. There are Christian and Muslim holy sites in Israel. In fact, the third holiest site in Islam is smack dab in the center of Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. It's the third holiest Islamic site after Mecca and Medina in Saudi Arabia. It is called Haram al-Sharif. It's the Temple Mount on which Solomon's temple and then Herod's temple once stood. Now what stands on it is the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque, very holy sites in Islam because it is thought taught in the Quran that Muhammad uh, was resurrected on a horse from a rock which is contained under the dome of the rock. He was resurrected into heaven. That's the place it is taught in the Quran where Abraham offered up not Isaac, Ishmael. That's what the Quran teaches. You see? It wasn't a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Quran teaches. No, it was Abraham then through the Ishmaelites, you see. So that's what's taught. So it's a holy site. So, so what does the Israeli government do? Because it provides freedom of religion. It turns over control over it to Muslim authorities. So even now, if you go on a tour of Israel, depending on what the mood of the Muslim clerics are, you may or may not even be permitted to go up to the Temple Mount. Now here, let me get a little personal and just be unabashed about it. That ticks me off. <laughs> I go to Israel one time. I'm a Jew. And I can't go up to the platform on which stood Solomon's Temple. You know who I was angry at? The Muslim people? No way. My people! That's what we get for disobeying God. Do you remember I told you the title deed to the land is given unconditionally under the Abrahamic covenant, but unobstructed enjoyment of the land as given under the Mosaic covenant, Mount Sinai, Ten Commandments, is very much a function of whether or not my people obey or disobey. God says, I'll never leave you or forsake you, but you won't enjoy covenant blessing if you rebel against me. And my people have. My people are a stiff-necked people. 
And so there they are in the land bequeathed to them by Almighty God unconditionally and eternally, and they have never yet in all of our history enjoyed unobstructed enjoyment. I'm not upset about the Arabs. It's our fault. When you leave the fold and the chief shepherd can no longer wrap his protective arms around you, you are subject to ravenous wolves. That's what's happened to my people. It's our fault. It's nobody else's fault. So I'm not angry at any other group. It's my own stiff-necked people. It's the way it is. So under Israeli rule, the site, uh, the dome, is protected. Smack dab in the middle of the capital of Israel. Would you tolerate something like that in Washington, D.C.? Yeah, I think no way is the right answer. Under uh, Jordanian rule, remember I told you there's no such thing as Palestinians? There's no Palestinian culture. There's no, never been a Palestinian country. There's never been the capital of Palestine. It was only called Palestine based on the Philistines it's kind of to, to, to humiliate the Jews. The Romans pulled this off. There is no Palestinian language. Palestinians speak Arabic. Most Palestinians are Jordanian, but not assimilated into Jordan. But when that area was under Jordanian control, Jewish holy sites were desecrated. Synagogues in the old city were burned to the ground. Tombstones from the ancient Mount of Olives Cemetery. If you go to Israel, you see the oldest cemetery. Um, uh, in the world. It's on the Mount of Olives. J- Jewish people uh, consider it a great privilege to be, to be buried there. You come by, you, we don't put flowers on graves, you put stones. A lot of people go, they say, why are you putting the stones on there? It's a way of saying, we didn't forget you. We came by. So we leave a stone. Anyway, uh, when this was under Jordanian control, as special as... Uh, as wonderful and as holy as that is to Jewish people, the Jordanians took the stones from the cemetery there and they used them to pave roads and build latrines. Jews have been denied access under Jordanian rule to places of worship such as the Western Wall. We couldn't go there. The tomb of Rachel, the tomb of Joseph, the cave of the patriarchs, couldn't go there. But in Israel, every holy site is protected by the government. If you want religion, I don't, but if you do, You'll get every brand of religion in the world in Israel fully protected. I mean, there's more outfits that holy people wear uh, and more varieties of incense and garb and hats and collars and whatnot. I'd like to get one, but they don't make them in my size. (laughs) You talk about freedom of religion. It's quite overwhelming. Now, we spoke of the first war. I'll pick up the pace orchestrated by the Arab nations against Israel in 1948. Um, There was another one in 1956, Uh, the Sinai campaign. Egypt had already been conducting a five-year campaign of terror in Israel. But then in 1956, Egypt, aided by Russia, what a surprise, our friends in Russia. Oh, brother, if you think all that stuff is over, Oh. Anyway, Egypt, aided by Russia, nationalized the Suez Canal. You see it depicted up there on the top. You see that uh, splash of yellow? That's the Suez Canal. Egypt nationalized it uh, up there in the north, meaning it 
was close to Jewish shipping. And then they also blockaded Israel's access to the Indian Ocean. That other dot down there a little on the bottom, that's the Indian Ocean. So no commerce. They were going to starve Israel out. So once again, Israel was forced to defend herself. So off she goes here into the uh, Sinai Desert. Here goes this fledgling new nation. Egyptian president then Nasser declared he would stamp out Israel, he said, within days. But it, it didn't happen that way. In 100 hours, please explain that to me. In 100 hours, the Israelis uh, crossed the Sinai and encircled the Egyptian army. Are they that much better? I don't buy it. I don't buy it. The explanation is God has guaranteed the survival of the Jews in the Bible. So Israel prevailed once again, becoming living proof that what God says to anyone who will believe, he will do. So when God made his covenant with Abraham and his descendants, imagine Satan listening in and taking notice. And, and I... I'm going to imagine Satan kind of evaluating God entering into this everlasting covenant with Abraham and commenting on it as follows. Aha, Satan might have said. Now I have him. You see, all I have to do is destroy the Jews. And then I can prove that God cannot be trusted to keep his word. And that's the root of anti-Semitism to this day. It's all satanic. If he can exterminate the Jews, he can prove God to be a liar. And if God has lied to the Jews, he's lied to you Christians, and your hope is in vain. Can you see what's going on? That's the only explanation for this irrational, intense hatred towards the Jews. Look, if there's a cultural group whose ways you don't like, don't marry them. But why do you have to put them in gas ovens? Tell me. Why do you have to drive them into the sea? Tell me. Explain that. What have we done? Don't you see the only explanation cannot be geopolitical? That's why in spite of our government's best efforts, and I support them, please don't misunderstand, man can't fix it. It's a cosmic battle between Satan, who is pretender to the throne, and King Yeshua, the Messiah, who is the rightful heir to the throne. So, so since the day when God entered into covenant agreement with Israel, since that day, Satan has been trying to exterminate the Jews. There's always a connection between election and suffering. And that's why our fellow Christians throughout the world are going through such persecution and difficult times. Jesus told us about this. They hated me, they'll hate you. That's what he says. And so, so, so since the day when God elected the Jews to be living proof of his faithfulness to his word, Satan has targeted them. And his reasoning is very simple. If he can eliminate the Jewish people, then God will not be able to fulfill his promises to them. And if he doesn't fulfill his promises to them, Three options. God will be proved to be either a liar or a weakling or non-existent. There is no God. Can you see what's at stake here? 
And if God does not fulfill his promises to Israel, that's why this thing called replacement theology, which we'll take a whole Wednesday night sometime to talk about, is so desperately dangerous to the glory of God and so desperately wicked, in my opinion. If God has replaced the Jews because the Jews have outsinned God's grace, what about you? You're not better. Look at the record of the church throughout history. But the Bible says where your sin and mine abounds, even though it abounds, God's grace superabounds. Don't you see? How do I know that? Jews, why are we here? Our hearts are uncircumcised. We don't know our own scriptures. We've ceased looking for our own Messiah. We're almost totally secularized. We turn a deaf ear to God who stood on the Mount of Olives peering into Jerusalem and weeping over the judgment which would befall it. And my people still turn a deaf ear to God. Privileged prophets and Bible and promises and still wandering, entering into adulterous relationships with the idols of the world, false gods like the stock market and politics and all the rest instead of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And still that God says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. You see it? It's, it's about God. It's not about, it's not about Israel. Frederick the second was king of Prussia in the 1700s. And he was having a conversation one day with one of his trusted generals who happened to be a Christian. They were discussing religious matters. And Frederick II said to him, give me proof. That's all he said. Give me proof for the Bible. And the general replied in only two words, the Jews. Folks, you cannot talk to a Babylonian today. You cannot have a conversation with a Hittite or a Moabite. But if you care to, we could talk. <laughs> Explain that to me. We should have vanished from the face of the earth long ago. Jews have been out of, we've had a 4,000 year existence and we've been out of our homeland for 2,500 of it. Wandering Jews in the diaspora, how did we make it? Guests in host countries until they don't like us anymore and then force us to be baptized or who knows what else. <laughs> By the way, you don't have to force me, just ask politely, okay? How do you explain the survival of a nation out of its land for 2,500 of its 4,000-year histories? It's still in existence. How do you explain the passing of six great, in history, six great human civilizations that have come and gone, and yet the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still around? What does it prove? That the Jews are special? No. Smarter? No. Wealthier? No. Better looking? Eh, maybe. <laughs> All right. All right. I got it. It proves one thing. It proves the Bible as the cornerstone of our belief is a very reliable cornerstone. It proves that what God says he will do. And no man, 
not even his sinful chosen people can interfere with the predetermined plans of God because he does not take counsel with anyone. He takes counsel according to his own will. He is sovereign. He's not a politician. What he says he will do. He is able to do it. And the existence of the Jews proves that. And if God has allowed you to enter into the new covenant with him. Do you remember I told you the Abrahamic covenant is a parallel to the new covenant? Abrahamic covenant has no conditions on it. It's God saying, I will bless you. And I will give you someone on the throne. And I will give you descendants. And I will give you a land. I'm just going to do it. And so too is the new covenant unconditional. God took the form of flesh, reduced himself to us because we couldn't expand ourselves to be worthy of him. He came literally down to earth to look into the eyes of those of us here who are lawbreakers. That's all of us. We have violated his commandments. Nobody has not. And he says, and I am willing to choose to be in covenant relationship with you. I'm not worthy, I know, says he. I can make no promises, I'm not asking for any, says he. I cannot clean up my own act, I am weak. He says, worse, you're spiritually dead. I cannot save myself, I know, says he. My sin has overcome me. I, I am a transgressor in thought, word, and deed. And he says, your sin is only a problem to you. I've solved your sin problem. Let me be your savior. And we say, oh God, what can I do to merit this, to deserve this? He said, it is without condition. Open your hand and receive an inexpressible gift of salvation. Abrahamic covenant, no conditions. New covenant, no conditions. Mosaic covenant, law of Moses. If you don't walk through this life in compliance with the stipulations of the giver of life, you can't have enjoyment of blessing. So too for Christians. Though the new covenant is free, free, unconditional. The most miserable person on earth is a disobedient Christian. Because you're an heir of the riches which are yours, every spiritual blessing bequeathed to you in Christ, and you have no experience of them because of disobedience. And your God weeps. And he's not going to dispose of you any more than he's going to dispose of the remnant of his people. Don't you see your attitude towards Israel? affects whether you feel secure in Christ. <laughs> I am totally secure in Christ, not based on merit, on righteousness, or on some prognostication of what I'll be doing or not doing in the future. I am secure in Christ because I have seen how faithful he is, though my people have been unfaithful. And the Bible tells me, though we be unfaithful, he remains faithful. So our great rabbi, Moshe Rabbeinu, said this in Torah, 
God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? I have no doubts. You know why? The Jew. This Sunday, our pastor is going to speak to us on the second coming of Christ. Thank God for it. Hope. But how do you know? How can you believe that it's coming? The Jew. Because God has fulfilled everything, every promise he made to the Jews, though undeserving as they may be, and therefore he will fulfill every other promise in the Bible. You need assurance, blessed assurance, of great things to come, including the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You want blessed assurance? I give you two words. The Jew. The Jew. If he has not dispensed with us, he won't dispense with any with whom he has entered into covenant relationship by faith on your part. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. It's only a foretaste of glory divine. You know who I am? You are, by faith in Christ, heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. How can I have this blessed assurance? Track God's dealing with the Jews and you'll see just how he deals with anybody who accepts him by faith. We ought to sing that, blessed assurance. Do you know it? Sing it. Let's sing it. Help me sing it. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine.